Good morning. So good to be in the study of God's Word in our remaining time. And as you know, we are in the study of Luke's Gospel, so take your Bibles and look at Luke 14 with me. And we are, we are walking with Jesus on His way to Jerusalem, really, and you remember last time we found Him at a dinner party, another one of those events that He was invited to by the Jewish leadership or the Pharisees and a host of guests with Him. And you remember in this particular occasion that like many other times on Jesus' way to Jerusalem, he was giving a message that was full of grace and truth. It was essentially to tell the people around him, look, you're going to be kept from the truth of the gospel if you do not deal with your pride. It is the pride of the human heart, the perennial sin, the ultimate corruption problem that keeps people from the gospel. Why? Very simple. People do not want to admit The human heart does not want to admit that it must have Christ and Christ alone. It is like we always imagine, well, if if God isn't going to acknowledge the things that, that I bring to the table, the things that I believe about myself, the things that I feel about the way I am, the perceptions I have of me, if I can't bring that and God's not going to accept that, then I don't want to worship that kind of God. And the Lord is graciously and continually exposing the obstacle to the gospel, this this whole matter of a human being's tendency and his corruption to say he's good enough and that God ought to accept what he offers. This is the problem with the human heart. You remember last time I, I looked with you back at Daniel the prophet Daniel, where he illustrated from the life of the king Nebuchadnezzar that, look, if God wants to humble a human being, he will and can do it. He has the authority to do it, the power to do it, the holy resolve to do it. And though he's gracious and patient in that sometimes he humbles them and then brings them out of it to learn the lesson, he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to. And you remember, Nebuchadnezzar was the empirical leader of the free world. He was king He had all the power, and yet God said, I am going to humble you, and that's precisely what he did. Insane for seven years, eating grass, he was was a laughingstock, and at the end, the very end, to the day of the seven years, he opened his eyes, his reason returned to him, and he said, God is able to humble those who walk in pride. He's able. That is the message that God keeps graciously giving through our Savior, Jesus Christ, on his way to his death. God keeps showing us in these unfolding scenarios the multiple ways that pride blinds our hearts. And if you're here today and in Christ, then then you've already had the ultimate humbling in your conversion, but so often is the case we can revert back to the way we lived as pagans. We can imagine that someone owes us something. God owes us something. We're entitled to something. We deserve something. Surely, I ought to be, in some people's minds, if not God's mind, exalted for the years of sacrifice and service that I do. Surely, there are qualities about me that are worthy of His notice. Surely, they should mean something. Surely, I should have less trouble in my life because of the way I live. Sure, I mean, we kind of revert back to this performance thing. God's going to love me if I perform, and so I've got to crank it up. Or He, he ought to be obligated to you know, bring less trouble in my life if I'm, in my mind, more faithful. 
This is sometimes how we as Christians view God, like we did in our pagan life. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord, then you're, you're like these sitting around at this dinner party who don't know Christ but want to bring their own righteousness. Jesus is giving some gracious messages here about the very obstacle that you have to face, you must face. If you don't face it, you will have no hope. And so we've been looking at the many manifestations of this thing that keeps people from the truth, this thing that blinds us, this pride. We noted last time the first three. The first was that pride hates righteousness. Notice verse 1, it happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. I said to you last time, this is exactly what pride does. When somebody is around who's actually living better than you, when someone's around who's actually the real deal when you're a fake, when someone is around who has blessing and power and the crowd is following them and you actually love the attention of people and you're not getting it, you hate that guy. You can't stand that guy. And so they were watching Jesus closely, not because he were a a distinguished guest and, and on their minds to honor, oh no. They had invited him to these kinds of scenarios many times and that's exactly what happened here. They hated the fact that he was getting all the spiritual attention. People who love themselves hate others who are truly humble because pride can't stand it. And remember John's gospel in chapter three, when the light shows up, the darkness scatters. People who love darkness scatter. They just do not want to be exposed by someone's life who's the real deal. The second manifestation of pride we talked about last time was that pride sets its own trap. You, you remember what they did, verse two, they, there in front of Jesus was a man suffering from dropsy. This was an attempt on their part to bring in a guy who had dropsy. This was a, the, the hideous, rather very painful uh, condition whereby your body can't absorb any fluids put into it and so you become incapacitated and often full of other complications and disease can set in and you can, you can die from it. And they brought this guy nearby or into the, the dinner, not as a guest. After all, they, they believed that if you had this condition, you probably had been cursed by God for your own wickedness or your family was cursed. And so they wouldn't bring that defilement into this dinner. They had him there because they knew Jesus would be sympathetic. He'd been healing everybody across the countryside. They knew Jesus would be sympathetic, and so they're hoping, they're plotting to, to see Jesus do a miracle on the Sabbath so they can go after that issue. But they're setting their own trap. You remember, it's, it's just the irony of this. Jesus is going to heal him as he does, and and yet at the same time begins to expose an even greater pride. But, but this is how pride always is. It sets its own trap. Just follow their logic. They're hoping Jesus does a miracle on the Sabbath. And in doing it on the Sabbath, they're going to call it work because of the external laws they created. And they're going to say, you're, you're violating the Sabbath. You're not the Messiah. All the while, blind to the fact that the power he just displayed proves he's the Messiah. So they set their own trap by their own blindness it is exactly what Solomon said in Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and arrogance before a fall. So let's just think about this. Why is it that destruction always follows pride in the human heart? 
Why is pride always that precursor to the destructive things in a person's life? First of all, and don't forget this, it's always this way, God is opposed to the proud. That's the first reason pride always goes before destruction. God is always opposed to the proud. He will strive with the proud person only so long, and then he's going to let them go to their own devices and their own ruin. You will be carried off by your own traps that you set. We might say God allows a proud person enough robe to hang themselves. 1 Corinthians 3.19, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. God is opposed to pride, and so the proud are always at odds with God. You can take it to the bank. There's no way to reverse that idea. God is opposed to any kind of pride. Psalm 138, verse 6, says that for though the Lord is exalted, that is to say he is God, he's above everything, but yet he regards the humble. You take one of his creatures, even a sinful creature, who is laid out before the Lord with a humble heart, God regards that person. But the arrogant, he only knows from a distance. That is to say, he keeps the arrogant, the proud, far away from him so that he can deal with them in a way that is definitive. You remember um, Peter, when, when his pride got the better of him, he was always sort of stumbling over this issue. And in one, of course, key moment, he, he literally cursed the name of his Savior, his friend, Jesus, the Nazarene, in order to get away from having to admit that he was a follower of Christ. He was full of self-protection, self-preservation, full of pride. But later, Peter would say in 1 Peter 5, verse 5, you young men likewise bring yourself under leaders and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. All of you should wear humility like clothing. It should go everywhere you go. Why? He quotes the Old Testament, because God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. So the first reason pride always goes before destruction is God is opposed to it. But there is a second reason why pride always goes ahead of a destructive pattern in one's life. This is sort of the pathology, sort of behind the practice of it. The second reason it goes before a fall is because it feeds everything our flesh craves. Pride feeds everything the flesh craves, which then inevitably leads to spiritual blindness in our lives. This is how it works. Pride feeds your, your desire for personal significance so that you see yourself a certain way, worthy, entitled. You see yourself as significant in somebody. And having fed your lust for significance, then pride feeds the jealous desire to outshine others with your significance. And then having begun a pattern of outshining others in your mind, pride then feeds you resentment of those who have what you want and you don't have it. In other words, you, you're not satisfied with just feeling more significant than others. You see what they have, you want it, and then you'll go so far as to resent them for having it and you'll try to take it from them, which feeds then a sense of entitlement it feeds the scheming to harm people because they have what they have, and eventually your blindness leads to a sense of invincibility, that you can go on and on like this, and you're invincible, you're above correction, it'll never be brought out. 
And so the net result is that we become blind to all the sin we've been feeding, and since the flesh is not static, it's proactive, it's a principle of corruption in our nature that comes after you, it never says enough. And so you've been feeding it and feeding it, it begins to overpower any previous warnings you might have had in your conscience. There's the blindness. And when it starts to overpower your warnings in your conscience, the final stage then is denial and dishonesty regardless of people pointing and saying, you are full of pride. So the first reason pride goes for destruction is that God is opposed to it and he's always going to put circumstances in your life to, to challenge you in that. And the second reason is it has, a, it has an inevitable trajectory because of the way it feeds everything our flesh craves. So we saw that pride hates righteousness. Pride sets its own trap. We also saw last time, and we don't have time to go into it, but pride is selective with Scripture. Verse 3, Jesus said to them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And they, they of course, were silent. They were self-preserving. He grabbed a hold of the guy with dropsy. He healed him, sent him away to go tell the news. And then he turned to the Pharisees and said, which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and won't immediately pull him out on the Sabbath? You guys are being selective about Scripture. You're being selective about the truth. You have conveniently turned the Sabbath into a set of rules that you can follow easily on the outside and look religious and spiritual, but you're ignoring the real purpose of the Sabbath on the inside. What's the real purpose of the Sabbath? Number one, to take a break after the full week of work and thank God for all that he's provided, the strength to work, the provision, the supply, and to remember on that day that there's an ultimate rest coming and this life isn't it. That was the purpose of the Sabbath, to take a rest to thank God for all that he's done in the week of work, and then to remember, oh, but, but this life isn't it. I don't, I don't trust in this life and its provision. I'm waiting for the ultimate Sabbath rest where I don't fight against sin anymore. You guys, he says, have taken that whole purpose out of it. It's not really about the heart. You made it about little rules, and you're going to try to hold me to it in your rigid, rigid externals. That's what the Pharisees did. They... Jesus would later tell them, you guys tie up all these heavy loads on people's consciences about all the external rules and you get behind the scenes and you don't even live by them. Selective with Scripture. Pride's always selective with Scripture. Well, these are my pet verses, but, but I don't like that passage. Or these are, these are my pet verses I hold over other people, but <clears throat> if you turn them on me, no, I, don't, I don't disobey that. Excuses, defensiveness, Here's number four. The fourth way that Jesus points out that pride seeks, that, that pride manifests itself is that it seeks the praises of men. Pride seeks the praises of men. Notice verse seven. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table when he noticed how they'd been picking out the places of honor at the table. He began speaking in a parable. You remember, parables are just stories that have features in them that are common to all of us. We understand the features of the story, but the, the details of the story aren't the point. There's a main driving point to it. Sometimes Jesus used it to, the heart, to speak to the hard-hearted, and he veiled the gospel in those stories so that only people with faith could understand the story and people who didn't know or, or were full of pride, were kept out of the truth of it. 
like the parable of the soils, which are listed in Matthew 13. That's exactly what Jesus did. The Pharisees had rejected Christ's authority as the Messiah, and so he began to speak in parables to keep the truth of the gospel from them as a judgment from God. These aren't cute little stories to illustrate sermons. And yet they are illustrative stories. They're very pointed, and sometimes Jesus used them to make a point everybody in the room could get, and that's what's happening here. Everybody in the room is going to get the point. And the first thing that we notice about why he speaks to them in parables is because Jesus himself was seeing pride expose itself in seeking the praises of men. These guys were picking out the places of honor at the table. And so the first thing you, you must remember, if we could sort of frame up this section in a question, just ask the question, what is the fruit of someone's claim? You say you love God. You say you want to serve God. You say you want to be humble. You say that we should be humble. But what is the fruit of your life? These guys were claiming to be the most humble men and models for God's people of someone who's devoted to God, submissive to God, obedient to God. That was their claim. But what is the fruit? Well, Jesus notices that they're picking out the places of honor. He was taking note of it. That's the verb here. He was watching and holding on to what he was seeing. Jesus was taking notice, fixating on these spiritual giants, quote unquote, who are supposed to be models in Israel and he is watching their life. Now look, this is a footnote for the church. This is very important. We are a culture of an endless amount of talk. We are an evangelical culture of all kinds of boasts about what we are and who we are and what we do. Oh, we're all about the gospel. We're all about outreach. We're all about gospel-centered this and, and gospel-centered that. We do an awful lot of talking about these things. But what is the fruit? Here, Jesus is sitting at a dinner party and he is taking note of that very thing. You guys say you're one thing? What's the fruit? Talk is cheap. We use that phrase, don't we? Talk is cheap. It's because people make all kinds of claims about their life with their mouth, but the real story of who they are unfolds when you follow them around and you see how they actually live. And that's what Jesus said in Matthew 7. You'll know them by their fruits. Watch the fruit of their life. Not that it's going to be perfect in a Christian's life, but watch the fruit of their life. If they say we ought to be humble, then you ought to see them striving to work on that part of their life. These Pharisees loved to put on dinners where they could distinguish themselves. You know what they used to do in the intersection of the traffic areas, they, they'd do it right about the time for the daily prayer. And they'd lay their carpet out and blow the trumpet and everybody would kind of spread out and there they were in their holy garb and they would pray and everybody would be able to see them pray and they could hear the whispers with an earshot. Those guys, man, there they are praying and so devoted to God. And then when they wanted to give, they'd go over to the coffer where the collection thing was and they'd blow the trumpet and everybody's head would turn, here I am giving but what is it like when you catch him socializing at a dinner? What's it really like? Well, the fact is they love the praise of others. 
No matter what they preached about being humble before God, they were coming into this fairly large dinner party, and guess what they were doing? They were rushing to claim the seats that were reserved at the party for the most honored guests. No name tags were there. There were some seats next to the host's seat, and in descending order for distinction, and they were taking those seats. They didn't know that those were assigned to them or not. One commentator said, he called this an undignified scramble. <laughs> That's true. They're, they're coming in, you know. It's a rather large gathering, maybe not necessarily the massive banquets, but they're coming in, and, and the, the noun here means that the chief seats, the, the places that are marked out in the room for such honor. And in this case, in the ancient times, it wouldn't be very different than you'd see at a, at a wedding or or some place where there's a banquet with some honored guests. There'd be seats closest to the, the most distinct person, which is the host, the one throwing the banquet. I remember one time I was, when I was in the military, I was working for a general's office, and, and we had this banquet, which were called cotillions, and we had to do all this formal stuff. And they had it set up like that, like, like there were going to be international guests or certainly distinguished officers and several generals. And, and, and I was just this little airman right out of boot camp, and they said, now, you got to go in there and, you know, you, they're going to look at your uniform. It has to be absolutely flawless and you got to walk in the right amount of paces and you got to turn left the right, left the right amount of paces and right the right amount of paces and you got to go up to the table and they're going to be there and you have to be right in line because they're going to be taking pictures. You have to have lined up. You can't be doing all this back and forth. And then you got to say the thing exactly as you're supposed to say it to the generals and they're going to be staring you down. You know, and I'm thinking, I could mess this up in one step. And what were we doing, though, in the ceremony? There were distinguished guests that were to be honored with a particular protocol. Very simple to understand. At wedding receptions, a head table marks out the bridal party, and at the center of the head table is the bride and the groom. And in descending order, there's family. The family aren't over in the corner. They're up near the head table. They're put in the room for the sake of distinguishing their place. That is how we do it. Well, in ancient times, it was no different. But you can see the picture now. The host has thrown this dinner party. Everyone else attending is supposed to come in, be placed where the host wants them, and then they join in the host's bestowing honor on the people that are set apart for that distinction. They're supposed to join in it. Not these guys. They're the holiest men in Israel. They're supposed to model humble devotion to God. They're greeted at the door. They rush right past the greeting at the door. They quickly push past the servants, past anyone else standing around, and without asking where it is that is appropriate for them to sit, they plop down in the seat to the left and the seat to the right of the host, and then in descending order, depending on who got there first. It's not hard to imagine that the first two Pharisees on the scene picked the right and the left of the host himself. Now, what is absolutely amazing about the narrative is Jesus is noticing that they're picking out those places. What does that tell you? The one who deserved the center seat is not in it. He hasn't picked any of those seats. Jesus Christ himself is in the room watching them, and he's picked none of these seats. He's either standing and waiting for the host to seat everyone as the host desires, which would be appropriate, or he's already been seated where the host planned for him to sit and in humility sits there. Or 
He's already chosen a seat on his own further away from anything that's chosen part of the seating chart because he, he is not a part of some distinct position in the room. When I was looking at that, I, it just crossed my mind that if the Pharisee had known he had invited the Son of God to a dinner, you, you'd think the seating chart would be a little different, wouldn't you? Jesus would be at the center of this thing. But no, the Son of God himself takes a lowly position. And just to draw out the spiritual implication here, when we're full of pride, God doesn't get the honor he deserves. God doesn't get the honor he deserves when we're full of pride. We try and steal his glory by manipulating others to worship us. Do not ever imagine that pride is anything other than self-worship and the desire for others to show you honor because you like to worship yourself. And so you got to ask the hard question. What do I live like? When I come into a room, am, am I like the ridiculous analogy John the Baptist makes of a wedding where the best man is saying, hey, I know the bride and groom are over there pretty fancy, but over here, pay attention to me. That would be absurd, John the Baptist says. So you guys want me to pay attention to me? Look, I'm the best man. I, I am not the bridegroom. Here, there's the bridegroom. Go after him. He's to be honored. I must decrease and he must increase. Jesus will say to the Pharisees, it's recorded in Luke 20, verse 46, beware of the scribes. Why? Because they like to walk around in long robes. <laughs> they like to walk around in their religious garb. And they, they love respectful greetings. Look, it's not sinful for human beings to honor each other for achievements. That happens all the time in Scripture. Notice what Jesus says is the problem in the Pharisee's heart. They liked to walk around in distinguished clothing. They love the respectful greetings. They love it. They love the chief seats in the synagogues. They love the place of honor at the banquets. Listen, evangelicalism has become really in our day a bit of a circus on this very issue. As I said, there's nothing sinful about people bestowing honor on one another. In fact, Romans 12.10 says we ought to outdo one another in, in esteeming one another as more important than ourselves. So it's going to happen. When somebody's really humble around you, they're going to bestow honor and respect on your life. Why? Because they're trying to do that instead of worshiping themselves. And so you're going to have sometimes a, a thankfulness bestowed upon you an honor and respect bestowed upon you. There's nothing sinful about that, and we're to prefer one another in honor, Romans 12.10 says. To value one another, to offer respect to one another. Paul actually thanked the, the saints when he got on a ship. It's recorded in Acts 28. He got on a ship, and they provided all of his needs, and the way he described it was they honored us greatly by doing that. Yeah, when, when someone supplies all your needs above their own, there's an honor that's being bestowed on you from them. And you, you can't say, oh, no, you know, I, I'm supposed to hate myself and self-loathe. You can't do that. No, you just receive it. Just like a, a husband is called in 1 Peter to bestow honor on his wife as a fellow heir of the grace of life. In marriage, we bestow honor on one another because we enjoy as peers the wonderful graces of life. It's right to do that. 
Now, here's the challenge. Are we using the honor and respect of others to create a narrative of ourselves that's not honest or not biblical? Do we use the honor bestowed by other people on our lives, on our work, on our labor, on our character, on our achievements, do we, do we use it to invent a narrative or nurture a narrative about ourselves that's not honest nor biblical, but is only an attempt to seek the praise of other people? The Pharisees loved the respectful greetings. Someone who respects you, that, that is their humble responsibility if indeed they're a peer of yours and we're all peers. But you not, you're not to feed off of it. Our evangelical culture is so blind to the pride that infects it. I just had to push away from the study and jot down some of these ways. So... Just think about the way that we become blinded by pride, the pride of, of a pagan heart, even though we're saved. We can go back and revert back to these old ways. What about academic pride? We might call it intellectual pride. Wanting to hear somebody you know, mark you out as intelligent and smart and above the other people. Wanting others to see letters attached to your name. How about parenting pride? Well, we're part of this education model, which is superior to that education model. Our kids, or I'll include our grandkids, <laughs> are better looking and smarter than, you know, others. What about just social pride? I have this many friends on social media. I'm popular because I'm just likable. Other people aren't as likable. My personality is likable. Ministry pride. You know, people ought to recognize my gifts. And you know, it's frustrating when I labor and nobody says anything about it. It's kind of thankless. That's not right. We don't get recognized enough. Ministry pride. What success pride? I work harder than other people. I'm a hard worker. People, other people are lazy. I work hard. That's why I have what I have. Because I'm a hard worker and, and I know how to work hard. And my bank account shows I'm superior to others because of it. How about just aesthetics pride? Well, God made me attractive. <laughs> More attractive than other people. You know, those poor souls that are homely. My personality is better because I'm adventurous and fun to be around. I'm better than others because I attract all the best-looking and most popular people. It's just pride of aesthetics and vanity. And then there is spiritual pride. Oh, those pitiful people who can't seem to get their life together. That is so ugly, beloved. God is the only one who can give strength to conquer a spiritual problem, and we would use that to feed our pride over somebody else's weakness? Yes, weakness is terrible. Yes, patterns of sin are grotesque in someone's life. Yes, it's a pitiful thing, but it has nothing to do with making us distinct. We are where we are by the grace of God, right? 
And if it's of grace, then we have nothing to boast of. But we do it all the time. You should respect me for how many conferences I get invited to speak at, how many books I published, how many famous pastors are on my speed dial, how many hits are on my blog. We do it all the time. And you know what? When we're challenged about it, hey, listen, I have to market. This is marketing. This is marketing. Oh, really? Self-marketing. Since when is that right? Ever. Or safe for your heart. People may honor you for all those things, but you, you must never nurture that in your heart. The Pharisees love the praises of men. So, Jesus gives a remedy. That's the fruit. You, you observe the fruit. What's, what are they really living for? What do their actions show? When they show up in a social context, what are they like? Do they flit over here, ask for some praises over here, uh, do, do something over here to get compliments over here, bait somebody over here to look at their achievements over here, center of attention, life of the party, turning heads. That's what the Pharisees did. They just took the higher ground, the higher moral ground, the higher religious ground, the spiritual ground, all of it. You should be looking at us. That's the fruit of it. But what's the remedy? Well, Jesus gives the remedy. Notice. Verse 8. Hey, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor. For someone more distinguished than you may be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. Now listen. We have to understand why Jesus goes here with this parable. He's telling it to drive home the importance of humility before God. And he does this because he's dealing with a level of pride so deep in the Pharisees that their antics at the dinner party are a reflection of a pride that keeps them from the gospel. So Jesus jumps from how this is exposed in all of us and and as Christians we see the implications, but Jesus goes far Further than that, right to the heart of what keeps people from the gospel. You come into God's banquet, by analogy, and you take the chief seat as if you deserve it. You know, some churches preach a gospel that allows people to bring their own righteousness to the equation. And they make them sons of hell when they do so, because you can't get there on your own righteousness. Oh, sure, you can come to Jesus. And you can keep that, you know, that sense of yourself over here. And you can keep your, you know, sense of self-worth and your self-esteem over here. And you can keep the things that you love about yourself over here. And yes, God, God does sort of take account of, of who you are and how well you've done. Of course, we don't serve a God who's, who's going to be um, not taking any of your works into account. Of course, you've been a fairly decent person. Well, the Pharisees were the worst version of it. They come in and take the chief seats, and Jesus says, oh, by analogy, this will be important to tell you this. If you, in God's banquet, his kingdom, think you're going to get there by privilege that you've earned, you know what's going to happen? God is going to say, you don't belong. He's going to come over and say, what are you doing in that seat? You do not belong in the banquet. You're not an honored guest. You're not even, as he says later, a friend. You're out. You don't belong. So for Christians, it's a, it's a lesson in, in humility, bringing the, the favor of God in terms of his kindness and making you useful. But for the unbeliever, this is a scathing and blunt point. If you think you can bring anything of yourself to God and demand that he accept it, 
you do not understand the gospel and you're going to be in a seat and when God comes in the judgment, he's going to say, you, you don't belong at this banquet. You're out of here. And so what does Jesus say? Don't promote yourself. There's the remedy. Refuse to promote yourself. Notice verse 8. When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor. Refuse to promote yourself. Why? Because the host, first of all, is sovereign. Notice verse 8. Someone more distinguished than you might have been invited by him. Wow. Now he's saying the host is sovereign. The host determines the seats. The host determines the distinction. Listen, by analogy, this is that God is sovereign over salvation. You think you're going to get there some other way? No. You will get there if, if God humbles your heart. If God in his sovereign grace softens you, that's how you get there. And I'll tell you this. When you realize that truth as a Christian, it, it shakes you to the core. Wow, I did not get to the banquet or be called a friend of Jesus without the sovereignty of the host fixing his love on me and giving me a seat at the banquet. So how should I live? I should not live with regard to anything of myself. Who am I? I'm, I'm an unworthy slave who's only done what's expected of him because this wonderful master has purchased me off the slave market of sin. He owns me. I I'm nothing. I'll serve you. I'll live for you. You want to take me through a life of trials? Fine. You want to, you want to bury me in some obscure place and, and make me useful to one person or, or just in a prison cell for the rest of my life? You have that right because I'm your slave and you're my master. You purchased me. I'm not worthy. That's Jesus' point here. You crush pride when you know that the host is sovereign and that you know pride brings disgrace. And for the unbeliever, eternal disgrace. And so he says the very thing in, in verse 10 in the parable, you need to remember that you're unworthy. When you are invited, look at this, go and recline at the last place. <laughs> Admit that you don't deserve to be there. Admit that you don't deserve a seat. And you know, as a Christian, this is huge for my Christian life and for your Christian life. I know I've been given a seat. So how can I look across the aisle to another Christian and imagine that I, I deserve honor and worship from them? If I got what I deserve, where would I be? I don't belong in some distinguished position in the seating chart of my own heart. God belongs there. He's the sovereign. He's the host. He gave me a seat. I go where he wants. I sit where he wants. Salvation comes to those who choose the last seat. What is that a reference to? Repentance. I'm unworthy. I need you. Christ is all I have. Christ is all I need. I, I bring nothing. The good works that I've done in my life, garbage. Garbage. They're nothing. And all they've done all my life is serve to blind me to the truth because I've banked on my good works. I've, I've banked on my honoring seat at the party. I've, I've taken privilege that's not mine because I've assumed I'm good enough. Oh, beloved, if that's you here today, you must know 
that the sovereign host is going to come and find you in that usurped seat and you're going to be removed. And you're going to be given no seat at the banquet. You don't, you don't want that. Who's our model? Well, Philippians 2, verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. I mean, he's at the, he's at the dinner. He hasn't taken a chief seat. He, he deserves the chief seat, but he hasn't taken it. Why? Because this is his humiliation. He has not been exalted yet. He's not gone to the cross yet. He is humbling himself he would never take that seat at this banquet because he would never want some men to honor him unduly when he needs to be fully humiliated all the way for our sin. He is going to take full humiliation. He's going to take our sin upon himself. The humiliation we deserve, the banquets we don't belong at, the uninvited sort of status that, that, that is ours, that we're worthy of, he took it all on himself. He went to this dinner party and he didn't even take a chief seat. Why? Because he knew he was not to be honored yet for my sake. He's our model. You cannot outdo Jesus in his humbling himself. You cannot. And the poet said it best when he said, go as low ere you will, the highest has been lower still. That's right. You, you can try in this life to go and let go of all your pride and humble yourself all your life for all the right reasons and you still will have never gone as low as Jesus Christ for us. You'll never have gone as low as he went. That's the remedy. To see that the host is sovereign and that he's the one that puts you in the place of honor and that you don't deserve the place of honor. When you come to God and you take the lowest place, Lord, I I don't belong here. What does he say? Friend, verse 10, move up higher. Friend? And then you'll have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. That's not a comment on pride. That's You're going to be honored with everyone else who's a a guest of Jesus, who's there by grace, who's been given a seat of distinction by the host. You're going to not be removed from the banquet. You actually will be with him in eternity and you're called a friend. Why? Because you saw yourself as nothing and you saw me as the host who's sovereign, who's everything. That's the remedy. To remember that pride brings disgrace and humility brings honor. And you know, even after you come to Christ and even after you know that he's gone lowest for you, we still drift into this thing where we love praise, we seek it, we love ourselves, we want the worship of others because we worship ourselves in all these other ways. Sometimes we even hate righteousness. You get around somebody who's really humble, you just can't stand it. It just eats at you. Why? Because you don't like the humble life they live, shining a light on your pride. And then we we don't think we're going to be setting our own trap, but we are. We, we sort of set people up to worship us and we end up being exposed in pride and ugliness and, and we, we hurt people. All the while, all we were doing was manipulating them to, to see us as, as the best and the highest and full of ourselves and we feed that and feed that and we end up pretty much 
never being satisfied and we consume relationships. You ever, you ever notice that? The more you want praise from other people, the more you consume that relationship and you lose it. You destroy that relationship. You set your own trap. And then you get all selective with the scriptures. Well, you know, yeah, I know that that passage says that humility prefers one another is more important than themselves. You know, I do that. Really? You're selective in it, you know? At one context, you really turn it on. You really pour it on. In another context, we follow your private life around. You don't do any of that at all. You're not sacrificial at all. You only, for appearance sake, you're selective. And then what about the, the reputation you want in your heart? What are you nurturing? Do you seek the praises of men? What's the fruit of your life? Promote yourself. Love your own significance. We've seen the fruit that you look for. We've seen the remedy. What's the promise? The guarantee, the guilt edge guarantee, verse 11. Why is it like this? Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. It'll never be any different in God's economy. He's opposed to the proud, gives grace to the humble. You want, you want God's grace? You want to be called a friend? We need to help each other with this. We need to help each other because Jesus makes no mistake here. This is how pride manifests itself in our lives. And it is an obstacle, not just to our effectiveness as Christians, but it's an obstacle to the gospel for those, especially those who think that they can put on some religious air. And Jesus says, don't do that. Repent, humble yourself. Well, there is another, but we don't have time to go into it. I'll just read it to you. Here's the fifth way that pride manifests itself. Pride gives, pride will give, but with ulterior motives. Pride will give to people, do good things, but always with ulterior motives. And that's what Jesus addresses next when he addresses the host of this dinner gathering, but that'll be for next time. Let's pray.